0: You know, it's important to, to think about bordering practices as constitutive of other forms of, of carceral containment, like processes of gentrification um, and or in parts of the Global South, you know, the processes of literally making slums as equivalent to gentrification, um, the processes of policing, the processing of prison, like, you know, of, of the prison industrial complex, um, I think these are made alongside bordering practices. I think bordering practices are perhaps the nexus between the local and the global. They are the nexus between domestic forms of carceral containment um, and global forms of imperial invasion. Um, but I do think that they're that they're made that they're made together.
1: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support The Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
2: Hello and welcome to um, this really exciting event Um, and thank you all for coming and giving up another evening for an online event which I hope is going to be so exciting that you feel like you're in the room with us. Um, As you probably already know as you've booked in that this event is brought to you um, in a collaboration between Haymarket Books and Houseman's Bookshop. If you are based in London or anywhere near, you might want to go buy Housemans and quickly buy up some stock so they can stay open and still be a resource for the left within England and Britain. Um, my name's Gargi I I work just about at the University of East London. Quiet about that. Quickly, if I hear they'll just say not anymore. And um Some of you will know me from different things around Britain in terms of bordering and anti-racist work. I'm really, really excited to introduce our two speakers today, which most of you I'm sure in the room know, but I still have some notes to help you know them better. We have Maya Goodfellow, who um, is speaking here today, who is a writer, researcher and academic. She's written for the New York Times, The Guardian, The New Statesman, Al Jazeera and The Independent. She's a trustee of the Runnymede Trust. And Maya is also the author of Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats. Well worth a read if you haven't read it yet. And our star guest, not that oh, I don't love all my guests the same, but our even bigger star guest, two equally stardom guests, is harshawalia I only think that because you don't live in Britain, you know, because we think people abroad is more starry. harshawalia is the award-winning author of Undoing Border Imperialism that I'm sure a lot of people in the room and across movements globally about bordering have been really so influenced by, and most recently, border and rule, which is partly what we're here to talk about today. Harsha's trained in the law. She's a community organiser, campaigner in migrant justice, anti-capitalist, feminist and anti-imperialist movements, including No One Is Illegal and the Women's Memorial March Committee. And I know many people across the left globally already know and work with her and really uh, value the inspiration that she gives them. So... How we're going to play it today so I'm going to say a little bit more, I hope not too much more, Then we're going to have some talk between us. But we really want it to feel like a community event, even though we're all in our own bedrooms or dining rooms or in the backyard or in our cars, wherever we are. So please, please do contribute questions. Because we're not in person, it can even be, this is more of a comment, not a question. What we want to do is to hear from you. So. Type something in so that we can try and feel that we're not alone, but we're really together. But we'll start talking and um, chip in when you can. As we've already kind of talked about a little bit, and as I'm sure all of you know, because that's why people come to events like this. The violence of bordering has become one of the really deadly machineries of our time across different spaces. People can join an online event from anywhere in the world, but I can't imagine that there's anywhere where people are not facing up to what the violent machinery of bordering means for some. It might be some differently marked people, but that way of saying, you can come in and you must go out. You can live, but you must die. That's being replicated in many, many spaces of the world. And we can see that that kind of violent segmentation of populations, perhaps always was, but even more explicitly in our time, is really embedded in these ways of extracting value from different populations. Both those who can come in and those who are expelled get disciplined a bit more effectively by that marking of the border. The differential status that people are given through bordering, that's one of the tricks of racial capitalism, and I'm sure that's partly what we'll talk about today. Certainly, as both um, Maya and Harsha have written about and other, others, including my good friend Nadine Elanani and other people, have talked about, that expelling of the migrant is such a direct continuation of a much longer history of expropriation and forced disposability. Again, wherever you are in the world, the long, long shadow of empire makes that space in which some people can live and some can can die and which people are just seen as disposable resources. I think our task today is given what we know about those histories and how they play out in parallel but slightly differently in different spaces, how we might together try and understand the escalating hardening of border activity. Bordering activity is not new. It's certainly been with us, certainly in the Period after the Second World War onwards and if, and before, but there's been a hardening in the 21st century, which I think both Maya and Hausch's work is really pointing to that kind of galloping escalation and more and more people falling into this space of disposability. So that you know you might wake up tomorrow and suddenly find that you were not a racialized population before, but suddenly you can be displaced, expelled, expropriated, and there's something. More immediate in our time about how quickly people are changing status. There's some other very urgent questions that, um, in particular, you know, I was very lucky to be sent a copy of Harsh's book because that's that's the beauty of doing events. You see, they'll send you the book and then you can read it for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I was reading it like this, like you know, like 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 you read um, when I was a child. I used to read novels like that. <laughs> Like you can't put it down. It was a real put down, da- unput downable experience. Very frightening, but also kind of can't stop, can't stop. Some of the things that Harsha writes about, I hope that people will have bring their own insights for us to talk more about. One that I'm very interested in is how and why, and with what techniques, that, um, a kind of outsourcing of bordering activity has become the business of what we might have thought of as diplomacy or international relations in another time. And um, how she writes about the ways in which richer and poorer nations recalibrate their relations to each other through this kind of passing out of the, the dirty work of managing migration. I think there's something which certainly I had not been familiar with before maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, but that's something maybe for us to understand and what and what that does to... Relations between in international politics, if there is such a thing anymore um, for us to think some more about the ways in which in a moment of climate collapse and pandemic collapse, what that militarization of the boundaries between us does to civil society everywhere. Can we even maintain the fiction of civil society, I guess, in a world of borders, is part of the question. Especially as we see that that kind of militarised bordering and boundary marking renders some of us disposable, particularly if we become unwell or disabled, while at the same time buttressing this fantasy of survival for some, even as the world burns precisely by engineering death and destruction for others. Now, I think that fantasy of survival for some, that's also... I don't know if sometimes if it's I'm a bit slow or if it's really come, come more recently, so please tell me either way. But I think that's a more recent thing. The idea that there's an elite who thinks, yes, the world is burning, but the way for me and mine to survive is to render more and more people disposable and bordering playing such a central um role in that. All of these things, I would argue, are are characteristics of racial capitalism in our time, a racial capitalism that continues the expropriation and dispossession, violence and genocide of many centuries, but then remakes that kind of machinery of violence to consolidate class positions and class privilege in our moment. So that's... They're my interests, but I have kind of some beginning questions. As I've already said, we will be, it's not just us three, there's some other colleagues of ours who are collecting your questions and passing them to us. So please, please do, if you have thoughts, just share them. But we'll begin. It's like a left talk show. This is my, and the left should have its own talk shows because you need to see that we converse as well. So the first thing I wanted to ask both of you, and both of you know much more about this than me, I know a little about it, is are we seeing a greater convergence of bordering techniques across the world? And if so, why and why now? I don't know if either of you have got thoughts on different states starting to do something more similar or in parallel or even um, conspiring together to share their techniques. Do you want to start, Harsha? Perhaps. Sure.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And let me just start by saying how excited I am to be in conversation with both of you. And uh, thank you to everyone who's involved in organizing and, and bringing this conversation together. I'm such a fan of both of your works, and so it's truly an, an honor and a delight. Um, I also want to say I'm on the un- territories of the Coast Salish people. So the lands that I'm on are the lands of the Musqueam, the tsleil and the Mish nation. So these are indigenous nations who here in the settler colonial context of Canada continue to exercise and affirm their jurisdiction. Um, and I think, you know, in thinking through uh, borders and bordering practices, um, often we erase the ways in which uh, bordering practices impact indigenous communities. Right. And we create a kind of dichotomy between uh you know, indigenous peoples and migrants. So even the framework of, of "quote unquote" nativism, for example, in North America, um, is associated with white supremacy rather than actual indigenous peoples whose lands have been expropriated and stolen. Um, and of course, in this in this moment of um, Palestinian uprising, I think it's you know again so important that we we think through, as you've noted, bordering as intimately connected to empire, right, as as part of global ordering, um, and and. In terms of the, the question about whether there's a greater convergence of bordering technologies now, um, you know, I'd have to say I don't I don't particularly know if it's uh, more now than before. I'm not a historian in that way, um, and I think in some ways we know that technologies traveled before as well, right? One of the one of the um, pillars of empire was, of course, the travel of violent systems like enslavement, like indentureship. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, indentureship, settler colonialism and enslavement were systems that scattered people around the world in deeply unequal and violent ways. Um, and in some ways, I think that history, well, not in some ways, in many ways, that history is central because even the invocation of the migration crisis as new <laughs> erases that the very conditions of possibility of this so-called new migration crisis is those continuities of violence, right, where settler colonists were able to move um, in deeply violent ways, and you know, scattered across the Americas and Oceania, uh, while people who were indentured or enslaved uh, or you know, or conquered um, faced a uh, deeply violent and different reality. Um, so, in some ways, I think those you know, those continuities of violence are present. Um, and also, I think there are certain technologies that are traveling um, that have escalated. And I think um, the three that come to mind, I won't go into them in detail. Um, but I think one is border outsourcing that you've named. I think border outsourcing is a new technique of bordering, and you know maybe we'll return to it, but I think it is um, fairly new, uh, you know, of course, in the European context since at least 1992, but I think in terms of its centrality to migration management, um, and a shared technique across states i think that is new i think the increased reliance on migrant workers who are temporary um, as a, again a more central pillar of migration management um, i talked about in these kinds of universal forums as um, as the, the again the kind of um, foundation of maintaining both racial capitalism and racial citizenship that migrant worker programs form the nexus between those two. And I think the third I would say is really technological bordering practices are very new, right? So relying increasingly um, on really dystopic, you know, drone surveillance, if you will, algorithmic uh, bordering regimes, smart borders, like that whole explosion of uh, technological bordering has just meant that borders multiply in ways that we haven't been witness to before. so I'm, I'm a Gemini, so <laughs> I'll say, you know, that it's, it's a continuity of violence. Of course, it always is. Um, and also certain escalations that, that we need to tend to.
2: No, thanks so much. Maya, I, mean, I wonder if there's things you I know we're not really in Britain. I always find online difficult. So if it's Housemans, basically it's people who can travel to London. And I'm assuming half the room is like that. So I wondered if you might reflect from your expertise about the British condition about whether that convergence, how that maps into into things that are happening close to our home, are not, not close to Halsha's home. <laughs>
3: Um, no, yeah, thank you for that. Thanks. I think that's a really, really great and really pertinent question. And just like before I answer, just to also echo what Arsha said. I mean, from my perspective, it's such a pleasure to be here with you both. Um, like I've learned a lot from both of your work. And so it's a real pleasure to be able to to discuss with you in this way and no doubt learn more from you over the next um hour as well as from the audience and just thanks to you know everyone involved in organizing this event it's these things aren't easy to do (laughs) i know and so i really appreciate all the labor that's gone into even allowing this to happen um and i think i mean i think i agree with what what's already been said i think it's it's difficult to map and it's sort of difficult to say um to say that there's a, a sort of definitive break in the technologies and, and ways of control haven't been shared before. I think that they have in certain ways. But from the British perspective, I think that one really sort of clear piece of evidence of that is almost a a rhetorical um, piece of evidence, which is this consistent focus in UK politics on the Australian style points based system. If you track the history of that, you find New Labour saying very, very similar things, you know, despite this sort of mythology that they were like soft on immigration, it's, it's simply not true. They oversaw a really restrictive immigration system in all kinds of ways. And and I believe there was, at the time of New Labour, discussions with the Australian government about how to replicate the Australian asylum system in, in a country like the UK. And so there are, you know, there are these literal moments of attempting to share how to limit people's movements in particular ways. And we, we now see that continued sort of um echo in so much of the UK political discourse and then also the forms of bordering that are going on under this sort of new, not totally new, but somewhat new points-based system we have here in the UK. And I think that even when there aren't these moments of um, definite communication or definite sort of sharing of, of ways to control movement, you, you do see a convergence around acceptable ways to do this or or, or desirable ways to do it almost. And I think a really good example of this is um, Lucy Maybelline's book, Asylum After Empire, details for us actually how, reason why you have a more restrictive asylum system in the UK and Europe, in particular from the 1980s onwards, is not because, as is often said in so-called refugee studies, that more people could move and therefore there was a necessity to restrict movement. It's actually who was moving, right? Which is what Maybelline argues. It was people from the so-called global south, often people from former colonies that were able to then come to Europe and to the UK. Um, and There was you see similar patterns of restriction, not only across the EU, but then within member states about how can you make it difficult not only for people to get here, but when people are here, how, how can you make their lives incredibly difficult? And so here in the UK, you saw things like the right to work being taken away for people who were um Applying for refugee status, uh, really horrendous housing, um, like lots of people falling into destitution. That's still with us today. And what Maybelline argues is that this is this was the outcome of processes of racialization that were rooted in empires, Harsh has said. So looking at that broader history and just thinking about Harsha's book, border, border and rule, what I found so brilliant about it. And for anyone who hasn't you know, who hasn't yet had the chance to get a copy and, and read it really do, because I, I, I agree with Gargi is it, you can't put it down in this, this horrendous, but in this way that you're being tooled up with so much information about contemporary bordering systems, because what I really liked about the book is the way that it did compare Across different, um, across different uh, geographic locations, different countries, looking at the distinct forms of bordering that were going on, but also drawing these um, patterns of similarity, and like really, really, in a really, really smart, um, horrendous but smart and important way, I think it's something that we all need to understand the the patterns of similarity across these different um these systems that seem very, very different. And I'm in particular thinking about the comparisons you draw between the Kampfala system and then the Canadian system. You know, the Canadian system often looked at as like the liberal welcoming system. And I, I think that that's a really important important thing to understand is actually how these systems that seem like are presented to us as positive and liberal and welcoming actually reproduce these what you call this commodified inclusion and i think that 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 for our purposes is so important if we're going to resist the border we have to know the ways it's functioning the specificity but then also how it travels i
2: was going i'm um, going to say that yeah. Before we go on to my next question, which is about migrant workers, I wonder if for the audience, Harsha, you might, might say very briefly a little bit about that key argument you make in the book about the ways in which even liberal models of migration management echo the much more explicitly you are a subhuman disposable person techniques of migration management of, of different parts of the world.
0: Sure. Thank you for that that question, and, and you know Maya for framing that so well. Um, you know, I I think we're we're often caught between um, the overt racism, white supremacy, depending on where you are. Um, you know, let's say right-wing anti-migrant xenophobia, which is explicit in its anti-migrant, anti-refugee vitriol, right? Um, And that takes the form, um, as we know, we don't need to repeat it, but that's often then countered by the centrist liberal and neoliberal, right, both liberal and neoliberal framing of we need immigrants or refugees welcome or immigrants are good for economy. And I think all of those framings in different ways are basically commodifying platitudes and or reinforce frameworks of charitable benevolence, right? So in the in the framing of we need immigrants for the economy or um, immigrants perform jobs that no one else wants. Um, those kinds of framings, which are intended to position immigrants in a kind of quote-unquote positive light, but they do reinforce the commodifying uh, inclusion of, you know, immigrants are only worth their labor, which again is a continuity of violence of, of indentureship, for example, right? That when that labor is no longer needed, it is literally disposed of. And that is the basis of the world's, you know, all states and really this global system of managed migration, which is a contemporary form of indentureship. And the system is a, is an example of that, you know, the only one difference with the point system, of course, is that it um, often leads to permanent residency, whereas temporary migrant programs don't. Um, But it reinforces um, the, the image and the representation of immigrants in the context of of capitalism, right? That you are either a high skilled worker, um, who is so-called high skilled. We know there's no such thing as high skill or low skill, but that, you know, capitalism creates mm-hmm. those categories, um, that reinforces stratification with respect to, to proximity to whiteness, to proximity, to caste, higher caste, higher class, um, you know, people who have post-secondary educations, etc. Um, And then the very deliberately cheapened labor that is far more disposable. But both of those are flip sides of the same coin. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of how immigrants are treated in the economy. And then added to that, you also have the kind of refugees welcome, um, which, you know, doesn't at all engage with the root causes of global displacement. But again, treats refugees as you know abject subjects to be welcomed in by the nation state. Still centers the benevolence of the of the nation state and completely erases um, how, in many ways, migration really is an accounting of global violence, right? And in many ways, is a form of reparations, as Maya you were saying, people from former colonies, for example, um, who are arriving into the empire. And you know the slogan, "We are here because you are there," uh, which really blows open. And contests the idea of of humanitarianism or benevolence when it comes to welcoming, quote unquote, refugees, if you will. So I think all of these work in the same way, right, which is to just recenter um, state violence, to to recenter and reinscribe racial capitalism and and racist citizenship. Um, And don't actually do the work of countering right-wing fascism. Instead, they fuel those fires by even creating categories of the immigrant and the refugee who was to be welcomed. Um, and I think, you know, where that really leads us is to re- is to see how the last thing that it does is reinforce the, the idea of the good and the bad, right? So the categories of then who is the good immigrant or the bad immigrant or the good refugee or the bad refugee, which are already state-created categories, right? Um, one of the things that I start off in border and rule is to argue that, you know, Categories of immigration are inherently state differentiated categories, right? In order for the migrant and refugee to exist, it's only in relationship to the border, uh, which is completely constructed. Um, And so that kind of liberal, neoliberal uh, refrain of commodified inclusion or humanitarianism also then creates and sustains the divisions between the so called deserving and undeserving, where then um, some are welcomed at the price of neoliberal citizenship, and others are demonized, criminalized, expelled, and
2: deported.
0: And it reinforces um, those kinds of hierarchies, even amongst and within migrant and refugee communities.
2: Thanks so much. Um, I forgot to say earlier, and I hope now you've heard people speak for a bit, you'll understand why it's so urgent that you do this. You can buy Harsh's book, Order and Rule, from Housemans online. You would be helping us to sustain this crucial resource for progressive politics in Britain, because Houseman's doesn't only sell books, it serves as a kind of nodal point for people to meet, for public events to happen, for other kinds of networks of resistance to take place. So it's in all our interests that it does well and thrives. Don't go to those other ugly online stores. I hear that they exist. Instead, <laughs> Tap in and look for Housemans. Housemans know E in the middle. Um, I wanted to ask a question really coming out of that. It's, it's very much about workplace organising. We've been through, certainly in, in Britain and across Northern Europe, and I think across the world, a real period of the erosion of workplace rights that's occurred in parallel with an increasingly brutal illegalization of migrant workers. You know, those two things are going step in, step by step together. But I wondered if, don't know i must have written this one because of something that's been happening in britain in the last few weeks About i wonder whether we're learning a little bit to organize against such segmentation of workers we're certainly seeing in britain certainly some smaller independent unions and frankly even some of the larger unions being dragged kicking and screaming by migrant-led organizations to, to organize somewhat differently and if that's the case what's what are the factors that kind of start to help us see a greater worker solidarity between non migrants and migrants? Or if there's not there yet, the things that we can do to make that happen? I wondered if you might want to start with that, Maya?
3: Um, Yeah, again, I think that's a a really good question. And I think, yeah, I suppose the context, like the broader historical context in which this is happening is also quite important to understand. And if we look back at the history of the labour movement in the UK, what you find is it's sort of an understatement to say it's patchy when it comes to thinking about anti-racism and migrants' rights. You you find actually the labour movement regularly is actually... On reproducing anti-migrant rhetoric, actually lobbying for um, really awful, horrendously racist, racialized immigration laws in British history, you find the Labour Party as well, despite claiming to be an anti-racist party. That is not what its history tells us. Um, And so we sort of set against that backdrop where actually you have had these sort of key moments. You know, people often point to the Grunwick strike, which was... um, I'm sure lots of people watching will know, but this, this sort of moment where you did see lots of trade unionists come out in support of a, a migrant-led strike, predominantly migrant women, um, thousands and thousands of people on the street, and that's often looked at as this really important moment in in the history of the labor movement in the UK, and it is, but unfortunately, it's sort of set in this, this broader history of there not being that solidarity and there being this sort of reproduction of a narrative of immigration being this problem, both economically and culturally, for the ideal type worker, which is often the white male worker. And we do see that legacy still with us today. And we see, you know, in, in you did ask a more positive question, so I'll, I'll get to the positive in a second. But we did see this even um, in the past few years of big union figures coming out and talking about migrants undercutting wages and this really, really unhelpful language. But as you've said, there's this there's this really important and often overlooked sort of um, shift that I think has happened of people organising in their workplaces, um, or these really smaller unions. You know, I used to be, um, before I moved to Sheffield, before I moved to the University of Sheffield, I was doing my PhD at SOAS. And there, there was a Hugely successful, amazing, amazing movement um, for the clean, the cleaning staff um, to be brought back in house. They'd be outsourced. This is a predominantly migrant um, uh, cleaning staff. They fought for years for years people were deported by the university um they really struggled and they won being brought that struggle and i often think oh it's interesting even when those wins are um are covered in the media for instance which is sometimes they are they're never presented as migrants win better paying conditions for British workers. And not that we want to fetishize this, but you know, you sort of juxtapose it against the, the the dominant narrative. And I think we are seeing in parts of the left, you know, there's always been a really important strain of internationalism in, in parts of the left. But I think we're seeing that in particular, amongst younger younger people. You know, you go on marches now and you do see, I feel like I'm old, <laughs> um, but I'm so happy about it because I'm seeing all these really, really um, smart young people who are coming up and understanding that actually internationalism and solidarity is not, they're not just these sort of fluffy throwaway things that you can, that are, are like nice add-ons. They're central to the way that they're understanding politics in the UK and globally. And so I think, Seeing that is is we are really are seeing that um, that being part of these some some of these really big movements like the climate strikes and so as well as that organising that is happening from some of the smaller unions as you said and some of the bigger unions sort of cottoning onto it what I've the way that I've understood that I'm not sure I've given a very good answer but the way that I've understood some of some of the bigger unions doing some of that work, whenever I've learned about it and spoken to people involved, it's always been at a local branch level. So people saying, no, we actually don't agree with the way that things are being done in in this massive union. We want to do this differently. We believe in solidarity um, with our fellow workers, no matter what the immigration status is. And I think that is a really, really important shift that is happening locally in a really important way, as well as the small unions doing some of that organizing. But I don't know if, if Harsha, yeah, you've, you've maybe got some yeah, some good examples from from elsewhere of of this of, of that kind of solidarity.
0: Thank you, that was so wonderful to hear. Um, I'll just I'll, I'll I'll start by um just echoing how important it is to tackle this on the left, right, because we still have mainstream labor unions, big labor, um, and also certain you know significant leftist thinkers who do continue to argue um, that in the face of globalized capital, um, that borders will protect workers, right? Like borders have taken on this kind of anti-capitalist architecture, uh, which is false. Um, And, you know, it's false for a number of reasons. One is, of course, that it's deeply racist and exclusionary to create and reproduce the divisions between the so-called citizen worker who is, as Maya, you put it, you know, understood and represented as the white male worker at the expense of um, migrant workers. And, you know, here I think we have to think about how migrant worker has also essentially become a euphemism for third world worker. Right. That's essentially what people are saying often when they're thinking about the migrant worker. It's thinking, again, in very racialized, deeply racialized, gendered and more way. And also it's it's ineffective strategically. Um, because, you know, the characterization of migrant workers is essentially scab workers um, who are breaking picket lines. Right. Again, that's the other representation that's kind of taking hold, um, really misrepresents and misunderstands and misconstrues the ways in which the border actually serves the interests of capital. Right. We know that in order for capital to extract and exploit, it requires cheapened labor. It requires labor to be segmented across race, gender, sexuality, ability, um, and so much more. And the border um, acts as a spatial fix for capital accumulation by segmenting in yet another way, right? Now you have the segmentation of citizenship, where whether one has citizenship or not creates the conditions of um, extraction and exploitation. And so, you know, when big unions, which is very much the case in North America, have historically, exactly as you pointed out, Maya, like a very long history of deeply um, racist and also ineffective strategies, um, the most salient example of which is in the Pacific Northwest of North America, um, with the role that labor played in Chinese exclusion, both in the United States and Canada. Um, I can't go into the, the history of it, but it really is an important history um, in a global context to, to look at the particular ways in which um, the U.S. and Canadian Pacific Northwest and the labor movements here um, were literally rioting, right? Like literally involved in race riots and leading race riots, um, including a white supremacist labor organization like the Knights of Labor. And, you know, that kind of the continuity again here, you know, um, that continuity in this current historical moment where it might be easy for big labor to say, you know, we're anti-racist, here's our statement on anti-racism day. Um, but the way in which it is still deeply racist and racialized to think about um, labor, not in an internationalist way, but to maintain the global apartheid of the so-called global North and the national working class at the expense of the international working class, right? Um, and so it, it, I really think it's, it's a central... Um, Issue in the context of the left to struggle with um, and to think about more more deeply, and, and of course for the reasons that it impacts migrant workers right um, of various immigration statuses because they become the scapegoats um, even amongst the left. And so um, you know here in terms of some uh, some examples also to end on a on a um, optimistic note. Uh, you know, the ways in which migrant worker struggles are seen as central to class struggle, right? And again, here where race is not secondary to class, and citizenship is not secondary to class, but to understand there is no way to think about class struggle without thinking about the ways in which class is made. Um, In Canada, I'd say one of the most inspiring examples is the Migrant Rights Network, which is a, a national organization of migrant-led, migrant worker-led organizations, especially of farm workers and domestic workers, and who have consistently refused um, the differentiation of themselves as migrant workers, right? Who very much in their organizing um, and have increasingly pushed and gotten support from major labor unions to actually say, no, like we are workers in this community. What does it mean to call us a migrant worker when we literally live and work next to you? Right. There is nothing, quote unquote, foreign or different about us other than the fact that the state and capital have created this this differentiation Um, and that it is the state and capital that has created the conditions for me to get paid less than you. Right. Um, And um, how important it is, I think, to build the consciousness. um, And, you know, this is something that caught on in Canada around elections time, which is that, you know, in the face of austerity and racist citizenship, To um, really raise the slogan that our enemy arrives in a limousine, not in a boat, right? Our enemy arrives in the limousine, not in a boat to push back against the kind of neoliberal austerity logic um, that scapegoats migrant workers, um, that allows the so-called citizen worker to feed into nationalism, Right. And we know nationalism actually blunts class consciousness and instead to build solidarity. Right. To understand that we're not the same. We're not in the struggle in the same way, but we need to struggle together Um, and to also really push back against the characterization, which until 10 years ago was quite strong in the Canadian context of migrant workers as scab workers. Right. The scapegoating of migrant workers as lowering the wage floor which again, bosses and boarders lower the wage floor, not workers. Um, so that kind of, um, you know, harder to kind of suggest that there's one significant victory. There are many, but I'd say really the, the, the shift in consciousness um, and really getting major unions to do a 180 on their positions is no small feat, as we know, because of the bureaucracy, as Maya, you've noted. Um, but to get major unions to come on board in a pro-migrant position Um, and to shift from calling for things like, um, you know, more border controls, more border enforcement, more state regulation, to now within, you know, 10, 20 years, because of this grassroots, consistent organizing, which we know is slow work, steady work, you know, turtle work, (laughs) out of the scenes of the camera work, um, to now, you know, have major unions in the Canadian context actually support the call um, for full immigration status for all workers upon arrival, right? That is uh, the 180 that we all need to be to be pulling towards. Um, and so for me, that's uh, deeply inspiring. And I think the last thing I'll say, and I, you know, I'll have to say, I only know this from social media, but it's, um, it's really uh, just lifted my heart the whole last week or two weeks that it's been, Um, was was watching, um, you know, the the um, the stopping of the immigration rate in Glasgow. Right. And I know that that I don't have a context for whether that was rooted in union struggle or not. It doesn't seem to be, you know, it's localized neighborhood based struggle. But I think that's part of it. Right. Worker struggles is not only in the workplace. We are workers in our lives in many different ways. Um, And part of the struggle, of course, of the labor movement is all to is also to expand, How we think about work right and to include the social conditions of workers like evictions like deportations um like tuition fees like all of this is part of the class struggle and to see mutual aid defense networks at a neighborhood level i would argue is part of the class struggle right is part of what labor unions need to be turning their minds to um and to watch that was just was was so brilliant and i and i hope that it continues to to ignite much more resistance like that
2: Thanks so much. Am I unmuted? No? Yes, I am. Oh, miracle. (laughs) I was just going to say something slightly old and scoldy before moving on because I don't know who's in the room. But I think it's really important to remember that unions are their members. There's people who appear on telly as if they're the Labour movement. They're not the Labour movement. They're only the Labour movement as long as we let them be the Labour movement. And that I certainly think in Britain there's been are falling away amongst younger activists because trade unionism is a a bit dull and is a bit colonised by sometimes um, the less adventurous elements of the left. But trade unions, they're the infrastructure of the organised working class. And if we don't occupy them, someone who is not our friend occupies them so that we all need to refill those roles and and spread them out. And I think that's, I feel some of it starting to happen in Britain. Suddenly... um, much younger comrades, for the first time probably in my political life, want to ask me about trade unions. So, oh, yeah, because yeah, who would bother doing that before? But it's it's at the branch. It's at the branch in the region. That's where that happens. Policy doesn't tell you what to do. You tell your upstairs in your union what to do. So even if you only spend 7% of your political energies doing that, I think it's well worth 7% of all of our political energies because That machine exists and it's our machine and it has other stuff, it has buildings, it has a national network, it has a conference every year where you can go and meet activists from all across the country in your sector and sister sectors. So I'd just like to really give a plug to the labour movement, not being what two or three quite dull people say on the television now and then. Who are they? Irrelevant. I can't even remember their names, let alone people not engaged in the labour movement. Now, no more scolding. Scolding its not here for scolding. I wanted to ask another question, which I realise might be a bit Britain-obsessed, so forgive me if it is, or tell me if it's too Britain-obsessed. Um, but I hope it isn't only – well, I think it isn't only Britain, although I hope it is limited. I think in Britain in particular, especially with the policing bill that there's an attempt to force through, and with the new immigration bill that's on the table, we're witnessing an attempt to force through increasingly authoritarian legislation, even for Britain, a real escalation in authoritarianism, taking away the rule of law, um, militarising public space. Extending that militarisation of everyday space far beyond migrants to the rest of us. You no, know, the innocents, You know, those of us who've got nothing to hide, so nothing to fear coming to your doors as well. And I wondered if either of you had any thoughts about the ways in which bordering lays the foundations for these kinds of further extensions of authoritarianism. Because both of you have written about versions of this in different ways. I'm looking to see who looks like they might want to answer it first. Oh, Maya's looking out the window, so I'm going to ask Harsha first (laughs) and then come back to Maya.
0: Sure, um, I'm happy to to answer that because I I may um, gently push back on that and maybe this is my my non <laughs> my non UK context here, um, but you know I would say at least in the North American context, but perhaps it can be extended to elsewhere. Is I don't I don't know that it is the case that bordering practices lay the foundation for for um, the militarization of space per se. As much as I think they really are constitutive of each other, um, so you know, here I'm thinking about um, you know if I think about this of settler colonialism um, and enslavement in North America. Um, One of the things that I argue in border and rule is that it's actually those structures that lay the foundation for bordering practices. Right. One of the earliest bordering practices, if you will, is the forced confinement of indigenous peoples onto reserves and reservations. Right. The apartheid system of literally pushing indigenous people off their lands and containing them um, on reserves um, as, you know, within a matrix of what was later exported to South Africa and Israel in terms of the past system. Um, And, you know, in in the U.S. context, um, what is often, I think, not talked about enough, but um, black scholars and black activists uh, like the Black Alliance for Immigration in the United States um, have really emphasized is that it is impossible to think about bordering practices. You know, we often think about bordering practices as anti-migrant and or a quote unquote brown issue, right? Which erases the fundamentally anti-black nature of bordering practices, not limited to the US globally, but just focusing here in this context. Um, and some of the earliest border patrols and the US-Mexico border in the mid 1800s or what you know, then became the US-Mexico border after the annexation and capture of lands that were indigenous lands and then became Mexican territory and then became the US nation state, the Southern United States. Um, Some of the first patrols on that border as it was being formed was actually to capture and contain enslaved and black people um, within the United States. Right. To um, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was to prevent the movement of black people. Outside of the United States to prevent black people from seeking freedom in, um, what was then the Mexican state or what was becoming the formation of the Mexican state. And so, um, I think actually the, you know, it's important to, to think about bordering practices as constitutive, um, of other forms of, of carceral containment. Um, and I think the militarization of space. like processes of gentrification, um, and, or in parts of the global South, you know, the processes of literally making slums as equivalent to gentrification, um, the processes of policing, the processing of prison, like, you know, of, of the prison industrial complex. Um, I think these are made alongside bordering practices. I think, Bordering practices are perhaps the nexus between the local and the global. They are the nexus between domestic forms of carceral containment um, and global forms of imperial invasion. Um, But I do think that they're that they're made that they're made together. And again, you know, if we think about shared technologies and shared logics, these are very much shared right across these processes. Um, And, you know, one of the the things that Angela Davis and Gina Dent write about in their work on prisons um, is you know they write about how prisons um, prisons are like borders right how prisons are actually acting like borders and I think the flip of that is that we can say if prisons are borders and borders are prisons that they're actually very seamless carceral institutions of containment again to reproduce racial citizenship and racial capitalism um, which are also constitutive of each other so um i think you know i would i would suggest that they're that they're made through each other and the other thing that i think um i would want to say on that is that the kind of creep around innocence um is something that is always contested is contested as well right in the same way um that illegality is made like illegalization is a process as we were talking about earlier criminality is also a made process right so even those of us so the idea of innocence um I think is one that's never really existed, right? The, the presumption has often been of guilt, not one of innocence. And, you know, um, the fulcrum may shift on that or the spectrum may shift on who's innocent um, and who is guilty and, you know, who is the other, but it's never really been about innocence per se um, within, you know, within within systems of control. And so in, in some ways, um, I know that it's maybe perhaps how we, understand bordering practices as what impact you know the the kind of refrain of the migrant as the canary in the coal mine um, but I think what that can often end up reinforcing is sometimes the exceptionalization that, to occur in the immigrant rights movement, right, which is not to see the similarities. Um, and often that means a fetishization of even the concept of citizenship, which we know is very hollow, uh, particularly for black people in particular and for indigenous people. And so I think we have to always be thinking through the relationship of um, caste, anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity in relationship to bordering regimes. Um, otherwise, we, we, we kind of may risk the reproduction of the citizen as the innocent if that makes sense
3: um yeah i i I mean i think i would i would agree with that and i think the the history of the British context also suggests that there is this sort of mutually constitutive nature. And if I'm thinking specifically about Bridget Anderson's work on sort of the history of uh, bordering within England, for instance, and thinking about how it was really, um, it was poor people who there was attempts to stop people from moving moving to different areas of the country to sell their labour. And then you really sort of see these logics then used in the, so post-war period, I mean, pre in, in early 1900s too. And I think there's good examples of this happening now as well. It, uh, um, in the early um, 2010s, David Cameron talked about, the then prime minister, talked about how immigration enforcement and welfare reform were sort of two sides of the same coin. And really, there's a number of different ways to probably understand that. But one way we can understand that, which probably wasn't what David Cameron intended, is that... You see people trying to navigate immigration bureaucracy, right? The, the the people the people who are trying to navigate immigration bureaucracy being denied um, recourse to public funds, being left essentially destitute, are then rubbing up alongside the people who are trying to navigate the welfare system, having their benefits taken away through these like really long, laborious forms, and that seems like it's um, not that damaging, but actually the damage that both of those systems do is really, really similar forcing people to jump through these different hoops, endless, endless um, attempts to try and access the types of support everyone should just be automatically entitled to, and this constant idea of suspicion. And I think there's a real similarity between this idea of the useful worker or the not useful worker, and then the strivers and the skivers. So the, it, Robbie, Robbie Shilliam does, has done a lot of work on this, thinking about the undeserving poor. And I think that undeserving poor is not only... Um, it is both the migrant and the so-called citizen, right? They're just in slightly different ways. And I think, unfortunately, a good example, a good but awful example of this has really been put on show during the pandemic of who's been exposed to that, who has that vulnerability to premature death that Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about. You've seen people not be able to access... Um, go to their local hospital or their GP because they're worried about immigration enforcement. You've also seen people trying to access help and support and then being, because of systemic racism across society, being unable to access that support or being in, in already in a really... Um, bad position to be able to get the medical care that they should, starting from like several steps backwards. And so I think we do see the way that the, the there is this sort of um if we're thinking about it in terms of life and death, we can see these systems, I think, in comparative ways, right? Who is being exposed to that, who's being made vulnerable and how, and how these forms of surveillance and these forms of stigmatization are sort of unnormalized and, and treated as a, as a necessary part of society. So as you sort of said, this these ideas Around innocence and deservingness, I think we can see both in the, the class system, sort of internally within the UK, and then thinking about how the immigration system works alongside that. But I don't know, Gargi, if you'd had have, have anything to add in 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 terms of that, especially thinking about things like the 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 immigration bill and then the the the, the upcoming policing bill. I'm having a lot of trouble with my
2: mic. Can you hear me? Yes, good. I'm very sorry. It's not telling me when it's on or off. Yeah, no. No, I think co-constitutive is a much better way of framing it rather than foundational, because you're right, that foundation assumes a kind of linear trajectory. But I guess I was partly thinking that, again, very Britain-focused, but I think there are echoes in other places, that the, the hollowness of citizen innocence has become more apparent, certainly, I think, in younger generations. And I think the very wide scale um, suspicion of the police and understanding of state violence amongst younger people, pretty much globally, I think, and certainly in lots of key metropolitan spaces where perhaps two or three generations ago, the, the promise of white nationalism could be offered and kind of taken up by enough That seems to be broken to me. In Britain, I think it's broken. I don't think you're going to convince those people under 40, under 35, again, that there's a kind of innocent state that will say, oh, look, you belong. But when I beat these people, it's nothing to do with you. And there's a whole range of things, like partly um, the breaking of contracts with the states. You're not getting a lot for your wages of whiteness or wages of citizenship. Partly um, different kinds... Facing different kinds of state violence. So the violent state violence that you see against the migrant or the black community or even the trade union community starts to make a more personal sense. Um, Labour precarity, which kind of throws up this, you know, so who is the Labour aristocrat anymore? Even quite middle-class jobs getting increasingly eroded so that there's, again, a kind of shaking up of what the wages of citizenship or the wages of whiteness are. I just feel like all of that, that churn also feels to me to be echoed in again in Britain. I think um, the state is in a certain amount of turmoil, however much it seems to be expressing its um confidence. That kind of overreach is a sign of uncertainty amongst our political class. It's not a sign of confidence. And I think that uncertainty and overreach, especially in this time of um hardship and pandemic is is their response to our unexpected realignment with each other because of the hollowness of these promises. And I think the Glasgow thing, you know, I'm not from Glasgow, but what people say, you know, but Glasgow as a city has some history of street level running out of the cops and running out of border guards. And partly, as both of you have said, that builds on a much longer history of knowing that the cops are coming to occupy you, regardless of whether you've got papers in your pocket, because that is the nature of policing of working-class communities. And once working-class communities can be, you know, not once, working-class communities have always been diverse, migrant, non-migrant, mixed, and then there's different kinds of alliances and battles that go on about how comfortable that can be. But that's certainly since the nineteenth century in Britain, probably before that. And that yeah, that when Engels goes and says, Oh, these dirty workers, he partly means these dirty Irish workers. Look, this is the degradation of industrialisation, is that all these people rub up against each other and by force they make a new way of life together. You know, that that is the condition of the industrial working class globally. And it still is in every global city, isn't it? So you know, I just kind of think there's something in the how the state responds to us in different spaces. Because when the state comes with their boots, that means that they feel scared. I know it doesn't feel like that, and it's always our side, which seems to get a kicking. But when they feel confident, they come with their smiles and kiss the babies. When they come with their boots, that means something is something is in, in battle, I, I, I think. Again, I'm talking too much. The host of the chat show is not meant to talk so much. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I have a question from the audience. Hooray! We love it. And once one comes, many more will come. So we've been asked from the audience that could um, both speakers speak a little bit more about what border abolition would look like and if borders, nation-state borders were abolished tomorrow, what practical changes might we see? visionary question. Don't know, do you want to try first, Tasha?
0: Sure. Um, I can I can start. Um, and thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, I have to say I, I, I agree and I've been thinking a lot about the reorientation in relationship to the, the state and how much it seems to have shifted. Um, in terms of um, border abolition, um, I think for me, in the way that I've imagined it and uh, articulated it, and you know, here not alone in any way, but really thinking alongside so many others who are, you know, doing and living and organizing in this way, um, is I think a few things. <laughs> one is that an open border politic is distinct from a no border politic, and I think um, one of the things that we um, are often a little bit immobilized by. Is that we think about the abolition of the border as okay? We get rid of the border, and then what? Right? The rest of the world remains the same. Um, so then, what happens? Do we have a rush, you know, a rush across the border? Do we have a brain drain? What happens to the rest of the world, etc.? Um, and I think that articulation, that um, that idea that the border um, will be abolished, but the world will remain the same, if you will, um, is an open border politic, right? Where the border becomes the symbol. Um, but the the rest remains and you know here um, echoing um, as you know Maya you said in terms of thinking alongside Ruth Wilson Gilmore who when she's thinking about and articulating abolition of prisons it's not just the abolition of the prison building right it's the abolition of the social and economic and political conditions that give rise to the prison. Um, and so here I think you know a no border of politics is far more expansive because I think If we think about bordering regimes, not only is the site of the border, which doesn't even exist, we didn't get into border outsourcing, um, but borders, you know, are multiplying across the world, right? Border outsourcing means the border is not just a line on a map. It means that the border is literally anywhere and everywhere um, and existing in many forms, as we've talked about. Um, For me, I know border politics means a complete reconceptualization of the global order. It's an internationalist vision that is inherently anti-capitalist that is inherently anti-colonial and at its core refuses um, the system of global apartheid, right? Like borders are a pillar of a system of global apartheid where many forms of apartheid exist. One in particular is even this continuous distinction between the so-called global north and the globe, you know, and the global south, um, and here recognizing that the global north and global south are shifting and the global south is not a homogenous space. There are many states in the global south that are imperial states like India and its occupation of Kashmir, um, and others as well. But really, you know, these kinds of systems of global system of apartheid that continues to maintain a system that divides and maintains power as a result of class, caste, citizenship, gender, and more um, is something that a border is pivotal to, right? So a no-border politics has to completely reimagine the world. It's a project of world-making. It's not only the abolition of the site of the border itself. And within that, you know, within this expansive vision Um, where the border is obsolete, where migration becomes mobility. Um, You know, I think the two central corollaries to that is the freedom to stay and the freedom to move, right? People have to have the freedom or the right, if you will, uh, to remain in their lands, right? People, we cannot continue to uphold a global order where displacement is the norm, where people are being forced out of their land because of capitalist extraction, because of pipelines and mines that are destroying the planet, because of drone strikes, because of military occupations, because of sweatshops, right? Um, So it's not enough to have the abolition of the border, but the maintenance of global displacement. Um, And so for me, I don't think that the freedom to stay and the freedom to move are contradictions. I think that they're necessary corollaries in a no border politics, which is then to me what, uh, you know, what the abolition of the border ultimately means.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with all of that. And I think that, that that's a really important way of framing it, because I do think that often people think you sort of get rid of the border, everything stays the same. And I think one of the reasons why it can be really difficult to sort of, for some to con- conceive of this other world is because some of the roots that we're told, you um, uh, some of the routes to change, we're still told, will work and do work. And I think one really good example of this is thinking about international development. There's a lot of focus often in liberal circles, but actually more broadly, the left of developments, it seems to be this really positive thing, really ignoring the not only the contemporary situation, but this longer history of things like structural adjustment programs and um ongoing forms of dispossession and the way that development is sort of really interrelated and embedded with, with with capitalist forms of exploitation. And I think that it really means getting to grips with capitalism. And that is one of the problems, one of the things that sort of can scare people off. But I think it also means getting to grips with the idea of the nation state and the inherent problem with the nation state form in is inherently exclusionary and I think if you want to sort of get to grips with that a bit more um there's a really good book Nandita Sharma's uh, home rule which I think really really like beautifully lays out for us the problems with organizing ourselves in the way that we're currently organized in in in, in form of the nation state and I think a really good example of some of the problems with the current discourse and thinking about borders and the damage that they do is this whole the whole discourse around around climate. And so I really agree that with Harsha that this is about people having the right to stay as well as the right to leave. And I think the discourse around so-called climate refugees is a really good example of the of the problems of people not fully understanding that because this is used in a really inflammatory way. It's used as sort of there's this Ongoing suggestion in countries like the UK and the US and Europe that inordinate numbers of people are going to try and come and claim asylum in countries like the UK because of climate change, um, climate degradation, the climate crisis. Put aside the fact that it is these richer countries that are causing a disproportionate amount of the emissions that lead to these climatic changes, what it really ignores is A, people are already moving within regions, and B, that movement is often curbed and controlled because not only because of these development programs that i've talked about before state capacity not being what it should be but also because of this same discourse around uh threat and around um around threat and around movement and so i think we're often really focused on countries in the so-called global north actually this kind of stigmatization goes on globally and so to really to solve it you can't keep reproducing the very same discourse that and the very same ideas that we have done for decades now. And I think one of the challenges, I don't think we should put all of our political energies into like the party political left. But I think one of the challenges here in the UK has been a lot of energy has being expended on that and somewhat understandably in recent years. And there's always a limit to that because you're always putting putting your energy into something that is um, concerned with controlling state power, right? And being in charge of the state. And I think thinking more expansively, is about thinking beyond those sort of parliamentary forms of, of power and thinking about connecting those movements up globally in order to conceive of that, that that other world altogether. So I mean, that is just a very long way of saying, yeah, I, ent- I entirely agree with what I was just said about, about it being about reimagining and w- world making. I think that's the best way to understand it.
2: We've got a few questions from the audience. Let's try and at least take one more. We might manage two more. Um, well, I'm interested in this as well. How has the COVID-19 pandemic changed border control practices? And do you think there'll be lasting effects even after the pandemic has ended? Very interesting and urgent question, I think, for all of us. Would you like to go first this time, Maya? Change the order around?
3: Yeah, I can do. Um, and maybe Harsh is going to give a more optimistic answer than me. Um, so this may be a good way to do it. Um I mean, here in the UK, that I did spend a bit of time right at the start of the pandemic trying to make sense of what the government here was doing. And the answer was not a good one. <laughs> There's sort of a dual answer, actually. One is that here, here um, whilst they haven't introduced travel restrictions in any kind of uniform way, um, they have been very intent on maintaining the hostile environment. And so... It, there was a lot of ad hoc sort of notices done on the government website, very poor communication for people who were worried about how they'd accessed healthcare or any kind of state support because of their immigration status, or just had any idea about what was going to happen because everything was sort of in disarray. The government did sort of maintain their rules and they they changed the rules to allow people people like landlords to continue to do immigration checks online and so they did go out of their way to ensure that they could sustain the border regime but there was also an interesting shift that I think is an important one and is slightly more positive is there was a lot of pressure from um, migrant rights organizations from people who were themselves detained for the government to do things like release people from immigration detention because evidently these are sites of like Potential super spreading sites where people are detained already in really poor conditions. You know, it shouldn't take a pandemic for, for detention to be abolished but it, it 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 given the government that we have where we are and they under from a lot of sustained pressure the government did release a lot of people from immigration detention um which was a positive thing the sort of negative to that is they maintained that it was necessary to continue to detain people they call foreign national offenders so we have this sort of meeting of criminality um in immigration uh, once again and so that's why we have to go right for the jugular on that. You can't sort of divide people up and say, there's the acceptable and the unacceptable, as we said. But there was this sort of somewhat positive shift of the, 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 the releasing people from immigration detention, which I think tells us that that other world is possible, that it is possible to organize and to demand that kind of change, that we don't need these forms of control. Um, but they are obviously clinging to it because they are, they, you know, they have the politics that they do. And the other thing that I would very quickly say is that there was also this big sort of outpouring and recognition from even people like Piers Morgan, you know, make it up, we will, um, that way, will. That. People who were migrants in Britain actually did contribute to society and were people who were staffing the NHS. And I agree with Harsh's earlier comments that there's a real problem around this kind of um, commodification and this treating certain people as if they should be able to access certain rights on the basis of um, what job they do. But there was this sort of shift, which I think allows for a potential bigger shift. Uh, But what we saw with that is a big campaign around uh, the government, directed towards the government, saying that they really should get rid of this, uh, the NHS immigration health surcharge, which for anyone who doesn't know means that people who are migrants have to pay twice over for the NHS, once through national insurance, and then again through this massive, massive charge. And they did end up scrapping it for people who were health and care workers. And so that's a positive thing. Again, it shows the the positive potential movement, but... (laughs) everyone else still has to pay it. And it actually increased, it's now £600 a year, increased during the pandemic. And so I think there's sort of a dual, there's a dual thing going on here. One, there's the hope of change, of people saying, actually, we don't want to live in the world that we live in, where this kind of inequality is consistently produced by, um, by the states, the governments that sort of rule over us. And at the same time, this attempt to really cling to these same old ideas and use the pandemic, like use the threat of, um, the virus not to you know potentially do some kind of con- like monitoring of people coming in just on the basis of which has its problems too but on the basis of spreading spreading the virus but really on the basis of controlling monitoring people who are see- perceived to be undesirable and obviously this sort of really racist language that comes with it in particular directed towards people from east asia and so i think we have this dual thing of like the potential of it hardening but also this hope actually of their pushback and there being some kind of change that, you know, normal is not what it has to, what, what, what it has to be anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I completely, um, I agree. And I think, um, you know, the, the hardening of the borders in the context of the pandemic, uh, we've seen happening around the world. Um, and, you know, just echoing what, what Maya said, you know, at various times, despite there being no actual health directive to do so, right, by say the WHO or, or other organizations, um, a vast majority of states around the world shut down their border. Um, and, you know, here the the ways in which the pandemic became weaponized to reinforce bordering regimes, to equate the spread of the virus with travel. Um, well, you know, when we know that the spread of the virus doesn't have anything to do, or has very little to do with the movement of migrants and refugees, and in fact, has more to do with the with luxury travel, right? It has more to do with luxury travel from the north again into the south and high income countries into low income countries, if you will. Um, but the, the conflation of transmission with with particular kinds of movement um, really reinforced bordering regimes and hardened bordering regimes at the site of the border, um, where, you know, literally we've seen spikes in border deaths and border killings around the world, uh, including in the Mediterranean, world's deadliest border, right, where um, where ships were were not docked and states refused to take in, um, migrants and refugees coming in. Um, and in terms of what this means, I think it's meant a hardening of the bordering regime in a few ways. One is the hardening of the border itself, but I think it's also meant the hardening of the, the the broader bordering regime, which is, you know, the fundamental um, structure of bordering regime. So on the one hand, um, in high income countries, and let's say, you know, US, Europe, U.S., Europe, Canada, Australia, et cetera, um, we have uh, migrants and refugees and undocumented people not able to come in. We have an escalation of anti-migrant xenophobia of the, equa- of the equating of migrants Um, as disease carriers and anti-Asian vitriol, and at the same time, we see the borders be open to deportation flights, right? So there's no issue with then exporting virus out to other other countries, and in the early days of the pandemic last year, um, about 20 to 25% of all reported COVID cases in Guatemala were actually deportees from the United States. And so we have the exportation of the virus. Deportation flights are, you know, in many cases still at max capacity. And again, while, you know, arguably the essential movement of refugees is being curtailed and criminalized under the guise of the pandemic, um, we also have more immigration enforcement, more immigration checks, again, under under the, the guise of the pandemic. And on top of that, we also continue to have visas that are churned out for migrant workers who work in food supply chains, right? So in many countries where migrant workers are the backbone of food supply chains, work in farms and fields, they're still able to come in the country, not again, because they're being welcomed, um, you know, in, in, in the broadest sense of the word, but because it goes back to that commodified inclusion, right? The state requires that cheapened labor. So all of the all of the ways in which bordering regimes work Normally, if you will, um, I think those contradictions and those hypocrisies, um, which are really foundational, right? They're not contradictions um, that are happenstance or circumstantial. These are fundamental contradictions in terms mm-hmm. of free flow of capital and free flow of cheapened labor. Yet the hardening of borders and bordering regimes, um, I think those became more evident. Right. And the contradictions became more evident. Um the flip side of that, is I think there's a lot of organizing, you know, and similarly in many parts of the world where as people started to experience this feeling of like the lockdown, right, the COVID lockdown, um, I think there was a greater movement building. And of course, largely and, and you know, so critically influenced by black-led abolitionist movements to fight for decarceration, decarceration mm-hmm. of prisons, of jails and of detention centers. Um, so you do have, you know, you do have um, hunger strikes that are happening across this world in detention centers where migrant detainees are fighting alongside people on the outside to get free. Um, and that, of course, then begs the question, as Maya, you put it, right? If this can happen now, why can't it happen always? And it really unravels the rhetoric of safety um, that we need to question, right? That the idea that prisons and borders don't make us safe, that people should be free. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of hope in that. Um, I think in a lot of places, a similar... Um, the similar kind of refrain around migrant workers as essential workers, as guardian angels, particularly those who are healthcare workers, which I think, you know, can open up the possibility for others, um, you know, to be able to to question its limitations and the commodification of it, and also to then expand it, right, to use that as an opening. Um, And then I think, you know, the double-edged sword uh, of all of these kinds of questions, you know, so in many places, I mean, in Canada, particular, one of the central demands of migrant movements has been vaccines for all to ensure that migrants are not left out of the vaccine rollout, um, which is so central. But then we're also contending with global vaccine apartheid, right? Um, And what's going to happen after this pandemic when we have talks about vaccine passports and vaccine passports in a context of global vaccine apartheid is deeply imperial, right? Is deeply exploitative is is a death scape and maintain mm-hmm. structural immobility that we're fighting against. So um, I think in the in the overall sense, um, there's to echo my what you were saying, like hardening and hope. Um, I think the hardening is where we're going to see a lot more of this, because some of the things that we haven't even seen yet, like vaccine passports are going to come. Right. They haven't. Mm-hmm. They're just being developed. And I don't think we even really fully understand how that's going to overlay on top of Mm-hmm. all of the existing dispo you know, just dismiss, climate crisis conquest um to now have this reality. I don't think we've, we've quite comprehended uh, the scale of that.
2: Well, I guess we'll all have to come together again around the vaccine passport. I think across the world, people are, are frightened and it's so open, the kind of marking of a really new ramped up digitized version of global apartheid in which to be on the wrong side of the boundary is literally to be cast into early death. In the interests of someone else's public health, apparently. Now that I think is a new ball game, and um I think we absolutely need to organize internationally. I wanted to say a couple of things, then use misuse my role as interviewer to ask the last question. One was, I'm sure people in Britain know, but just in case you don't or you've forgotten to tell your friends, that there is a national protest in Solidarity of Palestine on Saturday, meeting at the embankment in London at 1pm, I want to say, and things that people might not know, and I don't even have a link, I don't know how to give you a link, but um, again, this is only for people who live probably in the southeast of England. But at Napier Barracks, where they're still housing, barely housing people seeking asylum in the most dreadful of conditions, themselves really kind of admitting that it's a, a, a giving away of you know it's, of their responsibility and not within the terms of w- what any human being should have. There is a day of solidarity also on Saturday. I'm afraid organised far beyond far before the recent attacks in Palestine, um, from two till six. And if you want to look for it, you can look at Close the Camps, and it will tell you how to get there in, in Folkestone. If you have children, there will be children's things there. And I have a last question. This is a question, I'm not even sure it's about migration, but I thought, I des- I'm desperate to ask both of you it, so I'm going to ask it. In the afterword to your book, Harsha, Nick Estes says, There cannot be a protest where everyone is welcome. We have to draw lines. He's talking about Trudeau. He's saying, how can Trudeau be um, marching against climate change? Isn't he a decision maker in this process? And I thought, "Mm, I get that. I'm also kind of unsure about it because I quite often peddle the line that we have a universalist vision. They don't. They exclude. We have a vision in which there's going to be a better world for all of us. Some of us, them, might take a bit longer to get there, but you know, our vision is, is everyone. So I was kind of thinking, oh, I need to ask about this. So I wondered if either of you or both of you had things to say about the drawing of lines and how and why that important drawing of lines might be an essential component of meaningful solidarity, because that's, I think, really what Nick Estes is saying at the end of the book. You, this point you have to choose. And I wondered if that made sense to either of you, if both of you had a little bit to say about that. Do you want to go first, Maya?
3: Yeah, I can do. Yeah, I mean, I I think I agree with you. And I suppose the drawing of the lines potentially has to come to avoid what you might see as co optation or is a sort of an attempt to undermine actually what is a seemingly radical demand. And and sort of what I mean by that is people who in particular politicians, right, but people who potentially pose as being on side, but then actually want to maintain what is the status quo, but just paint it a better colour or make it seem more palatable. And I suppose I still hold out hope that the people who subscribe to that at some point will join <laughs> and will actually like meaningfully come with the movement. But I think it's about being aware of that and being aware of, if you want to make some kind of strategic um, partnerships at times, knowing the real limitations of that and actually knowing what the horizon is and not getting caught up in that. Because I think we've really seen that in parts of the left in recent years of becoming really, really focused on potentially sometimes too narrow goals and then losing sight of the fact of it's not enough, say, to support some kind of platform that is actually calling for more border guards. We have to, you know, you can lend support to that if it's going to mean a change in government and real meaningful change to people in an important way. But then we also have to be thinking beyond that. So for me, it's not necessarily drawing the lines or drawing the boundaries, but it's about maintaining the horizons and working towards those horizons. And, you know, maybe getting involved in some of the more immediate stuff, which is important and means material change for people in all kinds of important ways, but essentially ends up maintaining a system of division, of inequality, and so keeping our eyes on the prize, if you like, and I, I believe it's possible to do both. But I also know our time, our resources, our energies are limited, and so really making sure there's people working on the horizons for me is, is a really, really important thing because often that can get lost or overlooked. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That question
0: um, and, and that insight. I'd have to say, I think I'm a, I'm a line drawer. (laughs) Um, And, you know, what I hear in that, and, you know, maybe this is contextual, right? I'm in like, I'm in, I'm in Canada where, um, you know, really the central struggle is against liberalism, is against that co-optation that you're naming, Maya, um, is really the kind of refugees welcome uh, you know, we're in a, in a Canadian nation state that claims to have a nation to nation relationship with indigenous nations um, that really invented uh, the, you know, the global doctrine of responsibility to protect, which we know is just imperialism, right? Um, peacekeeping missions, etc. And so um, in that way, perhaps it's contextual where um, here, the and maybe in other places too, but just, you know, speaking for where I am, the central struggle has been. Um, to really make, to hold the line. Not <laughs> even to draw the line, but to hold the line and to refuse that co-optation, um, to refuse the slow slide into all kinds of neoliberal ideas, right? Of like being an individual change maker, um, of neoliberal austerity, of represent, you know, of deeply neoliberal representational politics. Um, you know, the, the conservative party, the right-wing party here in Canada, federally, has more racialized people in it than the left party, right? Like, that's obviously not the answer. Um, and so, what I hear in that is like how important it is to maintain the line or the horizon, if we will. Um, and to, and you know, within that, of course, who we hold the line against is also deeply contextual, right? Like, when politicians are co opting, that's very different. Um, than a comrade who is still learning as we all are, right? Power is deeply relational. Um, That's, you know, when a corporation puts out a statement um, around equity, diversity, and inclusion, that's very different than people who are our neighbors learning in a workshop, right? So in that way, I think holding the line against who represents power and who represents capital, what are the state and capital forces, and to maintain a line to to refuse that, um, to get clear on that, I think clarity helps. I don't know if it's maybe it's not the line, but it's clarity. It's political clarity. Um, but of course, always being open to people. Right. Like there, there's a difference between um, structures and people. Um, and so for me, I, I think that's the other uh, distinction that I that I hear in that, because, you know, Trudeau, you know, you know the large climate protests who are welcoming to all people are big tents um, you know, in that way, right? There are large tents of people, they are large coalitional projects, um, their are large coalitional mobilizations, but for the head of state to be ramming through a climate pipeline, that is the very pipeline that you're protesting to show up at your protest. Like you need to, you know, that, that requires contention, um, that requires some confrontation that requires some political clarity and perhaps some, some line drawing in that way.
2: No, thank you so much. And I think, oh, I'm guessing you can hear me because no one's saying I'm muted. No, thank you. And that, as I think, is exactly the kind of conversation I hoped we'd have. It's the end of our session, which has just flown by. Thank you so much to both Harsha and Maya. I thought that was just such a urgent and engaging conversation. And I I feel very you know, privileged to have been here. I have this idea that we should really... As well as thanking each other and thanking everyone who made this possible. As Harsha said, it takes, and Maya said, it takes a lot of energy and effort to put these events on and to thank you all for coming. And I can't stop myself from saying, we really ought to end by saying, from the river to the sea, victory to the intifada. Because we've got an evening here, but we know, be in the street. This week, be in the street. Not so your state can see, but so that Palestinians can see that we still remember. And thank you. Thank you all for coming.
1: Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.